Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to episode 22 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this on Sunday, August 31st, 2014. Today, I want to talk about stored procedures. About 11 years ago in 2003, there was a huge uproar about store procedures, culminating in two camps over two different blog posts. First, a guy named Rob Howard wrote a blog explaining why he tells people to use stored procs for everything. Then, uh, Franz Bauma, creator of LLBL Gen ORM and therefore a little biased, pointed out why Rob was wrong and Rob responded back. And even back then before Twitter, blogs were popping up arguing for one side or the other. But Pete, this was 11 years ago. Why are you even bringing this up? Recently, I've started to see some more shade thrown at store procedures, bringing up the Rob and France posts and one from Jeff Atwood in 2004, and the same tired arguments over and over again. Statements are being made like, no one has used store procedures for years anyway. I have so many problems with these statements and philosophy that it's almost hard for me to figure out where to start. Let me start with what I'm not saying. There's so much misinformation by people who are store procedure zealots that it makes it hard to actually have an intelligent conversation on the subject. The other thing I want to start with is that I haven't forgotten about my last podcast already. In fact, it is one of the things that has gotten me fired up. With so many people making anti-store procedures or religious argument, instead of analyzing the facts at hand to see if the decision has made any sense. As I discuss this topic, I'll try to point out where the alternatives make sense and when I can see where they're coming from. First things first, and this is often cited as the big one, stored procedures are not compiled in a way that makes them faster than everything else. SQL Server and other RDBMSs cache execution plans for queries. If you parameterize your query, the cached plan can be used again. So, select name from person where person ID equals 1 is not very reusable. But if you declare at person ID int equals 1 and then say select name from person where person ID equals at person ID, this does result in a reusable plan. And that is the kind of SQL that you would see within a store procedure typically. But if you write your normal SQL in that manner, then you'll see the same performance gains. There's no advantage of one over the other in that respect. There is some confusion here, though, because a store procedure option is available in SQL Server with recompile. I've seen this cited as evidence that procs are compiled and therefore faster. But if you look at MSDN, it says, when a procedure is compiled for the first time or recompiled, the procedure's query plan is optimized for the current state of the database and its objects. If a database undergoes significant changes to its data or structure, recompiling a procedure updates and optimizes the procedure's query plan for those changes. This can improve the procedure's processing performance. That is just talking about the execution plan being set up in the best possible way based on the database's current state. This is useful if you've added indexing or additional structures that may cause a different and hopefully better execution plan to need to be chosen for your query. Some of the reasons given for not wanting to use store procedures are that they A, hide application logic in the database, B, are written in T-SQL, which Jeff Atwood called archaic in that 2004 post, and C, you cannot debug store procedures in the same IDE that you write your UI code in. Two and a half of these three arguments are completely bogus now. Yes, if you choose to do so, procs can hide application logic, but they don't have to be written that way. I can make an argument against any technology if I cite the worst way that you could possibly use or implement the technology. The argument against learning T-SQL is also very bad. Back in 2004, maybe everyone was trying to only know as little as possible 
and just master their silo, but we've grown beyond that. In 2004, .NET folks were trying to put everything in C-sharp and avoid having to even know HTML and JavaScript to write their web apps. This is not the way that we live in 2014. It doesn't matter what brand of developer you are, you probably work in your language of choice, and HTML, and CSS, and JavaScript, and who knows what else. It's about the right tool for the right job. T-SQL, or PLSQL, isn't archaic, it's a functional language that operates in a set-based way. Maybe functional was archaic to Jeff Atwood back in 2004, but now everything that was old is new again, and functional is the new hotness as people realize that different programming languages are useful to solve different kinds of problems. Lastly, if I write my code in Visual Studio, I can absolutely debug store procedures in the same IDE that I write my application code in. Microsoft offered that in Visual Studio 2005 and since. I never use it though, because I don't put application logic in my store procedures. If I'm not getting the results that I expect, I probably wrote the query wrong. I don't need a debugger to solve that problem. So what are the alternatives to using store procedures? First, I could choose to put SQL statements in my application code. I don't hate this, but I don't really like it either. The main reason that is if you need to tweak a query for whatever reason, you have to recompile and redeploy your application. I will grant here though that advances in technology have made this much less of a hassle. If you're practicing continuous deployment, you may not care about deploying your application. Maybe you deploy twice a day. In that case, putting SQL in your application code could make perfect sense. The second major alternative is to use an ORM. To me, an ORM's biggest strength is when your database is only a persistence repository for your application's objects. In that case, effectively serializing your objects to a database table and deserializing them back to the app at a later time. If you're doing that, why would you need to write any SQL? There is nothing special about your database whatsoever. It might as well be an XML file on disk. I think this is where a lot of the disconnect lies. So many developers work on an application whose database is an object persistence store. That is also a great case to use many of the NoSQL databases because you remove a few more barriers to easy object persistence. I've done much of my work in the enterprise space where a database wasn't designed with one application in mind. One database may need to support several applications, and if the business isn't far enough along yet or doesn't have the resources, it may need to support reporting and some kind of light analytics as well. A simple object data store doesn't get that done. However, in this case, Franz Bauma's point does come into play. I could write views that the ORMs could operate against to pull the data. This would allow the database to appear to the application like it expects it to. This does not solve the entire problem to me though, because inserts, updates, and deletes get hairy. Before you jump out of your seat and you tell me that you can insert and update and delete against a view, I know, I know. However, there are a lot of rules around it. For instance, if you perform an insert, rows get inserted for the tables involved, and if they don't have specified values or default values, the insert fails. To me, this is hiding some serious application logic in the database and requires high documentation or tribal knowledge so that the future app developers know what to do or they understand why things are failing. Assuming you have a large database that serves several apps that may include apps you don't work on, you probably have a DBA in your application. This is often where security comes into play. If you use an ORM, you have to basically grant the ORM carte blanche to the database as far as reads and writes to every table. Typically, DBAs don't like this. Yes, it's possible to add some tightening and safeguards around this, but I can say that every time I've come to an organization with an ORM, the ORM user could read and write to every table in the database without prejudice. To me, allowing the ORM to read the tables, but to only update through store procedures that it is granted rights to, is a much better solution. Even Orion Eni 
aka Allende, agrees with this solution in that case. I have a link to the sh- in the show notes to a post of his from 2006 that supports such a compromise with the DBA. This is from Mr. N. Hibernate himself. Keep that in mind. Another issue with ORMs in a complex database scenario is the SQL it produces and how it produces it. The fact is that it's really easy to get yourself into an N plus 1 scenario with these ORMs. Allende has built a career and a business on helping people with the issues that they get into with N Hibernate via consulting in his profiler application. There are many other ORM vendors who also give away their ORM product for free and open source, but then make a mint consulting to get you through your problems. I have a mini side rant here. I have some experience with teams that choose a tool and then let it dictate everything that they do. They're getting their lunch eaten in the marketplace, but when we discuss how to get their product feature parity and even feature forward, the excuse I hear over and over again is how they can't figure out how to get their ORM to work that way. If your tool is constantly getting in your way, you might want to consider a different tool or a different approach. In this case, dealing with SQL Server full text indexing, operating against a store procedure would have solved the problem. I even suggested a view, but they threw it out because they couldn't figure out how to get the tool to generate the necessary contains clauses. My next point here is related to the previous one, performance. Between the SQL generated and the effort necessary to generate and map to objects, traditional ORMs cannot compare to raw data access technologies or the new micro ORMs that are available. A big complaint against using some of these technologies like raw data access is the amount of code that you have to write. Code like object.property equals record set row dot get some property. I have three answers to this. First, many ORMs require a lot of XML or setup code to operate, and that isn't free either. Second, this code can be generated. I'm not against code generation. If you have a solid convention, you could generate most, if not all, of this mapping code. Thirdly, you only have to do this once. Performance is a feature, and if you can write code that executes faster by taking a minute or two per object as you develop the application, way faster even if you get the code generation working, then it's worth it. Please hear me though, I'm not saying that all of these other tools and methods don't have their place. The subject of the podcast is about why store procedures aren't anathema. Procs, views, ORMs, these are all tools in a toolbox and you should consider all of the data you have and choose the best tool for the job. That's what architects are supposed to be paid to do. The right choice isn't, everywhere I go, I put in procs and micro ORMs, or everywhere I go, it is a service-oriented architecture, or everywhere I go, it is ORMs and no developer written SQL. You have to take into account the environment, the team makeup and skill set, your time frame, and the current state of technology. As always, the correct answer is, it depends. My first pick of the week this week is called ZipLocate, and you can find it at ziplocate.us. ZipLocate is a nice free alternative to some more costly zip code services. ZipLocate is always free and never rate limited. You may ask how that's possible. But because the dataset's relatively small, it fits into 512 megabytes of memory, so everything's completely cached and bandwidth is small, and it costs the developers about 5 bucks a month to run, compared to about $500 a year for commercial products. If you don't trust it to be around in the future, it's open source and you can host it yourself. Everything's on GitHub. Check it out. My second pick of the week is GUI, G-O-O-E-Y. I'll have the link to the GitHub in the show notes. What it does is make a GUI, G-U-I, from almost any command line tool. With just a little bit of work, you can turn a command line application into something that anyone can use. Whether you want to just make it easier for yourself to remember all the options for some arcane command, or because you want to make grep easy to use for your Luddite brother, GUI makes it all possible. 
That's it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or feedback, you can find me on Twitter as at PeteOnSoftware or on my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com. If you have a minute, I'd really appreciate any feedback or reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found me. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.